welcome to episode 14 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the security event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Looking at the major news in the security business sector at the moment, the Information Commissioner's Office has just fined British Airways £20 million for the company's failure to protect the personal and financial details of more than 400,000 of its customers. An ICO investigation found that the airline was processing a significant amount of personal data without adequate security measures being in place. This failure broke data protection law and, subsequently, British Airways was the subject of a cyber attack during 2018. The company didn't detect this attack for more than two months. ICO investigators found that British Airways ought to have identified weaknesses in its security and resolved them with security measures available at the time. Investigators concluded that addressing these security issues would have prevented the 2018 attack being carried out in this way. Speaking about the case, Information Commissioner Elizabeth Denham said, People entrusted their personal details to British Airways and the company failed to take adequate measures to keep those details secure. The company's failure to act was unacceptable and affected hundreds of thousands of people, which may have caused some anxiety and distress as a result. That's why we've issued British Airways with a £20 million fine. This is the biggest fine we've issued to date. Further, Denham stated, when organisations take poor decisions around personal data, that can have a real impact on people's lives. The law now gives us the tools to encourage businesses to make better decisions about data, including investing in up-to-date security. In June last year, the ICO issued British Airways with a notice of intent to fine. As part of the regulatory process, the ICO considered both representations from British Airways itself and the economic impact of COVID-19 on the business before setting a final penalty. The cyber attacker is believed to have potentially accessed the personal data of approximately 430,000 customers and staff. This included the names, addresses, payment card numbers and CVV numbers of 244,000 British Airways customers. Other details thought to have been accessed include the combined card and CVV numbers of 77,000 customers and the card numbers only for 108,000 customers. Usernames and passwords of British Airways employee and administrator accounts, as well as usernames and pins of up to 612 British Airways Executive Club accounts, were also potentially accessed. British Airways was alerted about the attack by a third-party more than two months after it actually happened. Once the business became aware of the breach, British Airways did act promptly and notified the ICO. It's not clear whether or when British Airways would have identified the attack itself. This was considered to be a severe failing because of the number of people affected and also because any potential financial harm could have been more significant. Given that the original intention was to fine British Airways £183 million, the actual amount levied may be seen by some as a climb down by the ICO. The very fact that the actual notice is 114 pages long and also refers to multiple and robust arguments from British Airways lawyers suggests that there may be an appeal and, therefore, more developments to come. This is highly likely to cost the ICO and British Airways heavily in terms of legal fees at a time when both will have a whole host of Brexit and COVID-related matters on their agenda. Security Guarding Solutions Specialist Wilson James has just announced the acquisition of the Security Group as part of a long-term strategy designed to provide clients with holistic solutions to their general security and guarding needs. The acquisition will allow Wilson James to meet increasing demand from customers for information-led solutions they require in order to address security challenges across a range of sectors. Customers will now benefit from advanced security technology through a new technology services business unit that's currently being established at Wilson James. As a result of the acquisition, around 200 TSG employees will be welcomed into the larger Wilson James family. TSG's client base is primarily centred in the southeast of England and includes both public and private sector organisations. It's a good strategic fit with Wilson James' existing customers. TSG's existing security guarding operations will now be managed by Barry Dawson, recently appointed Managing 
Director for Security at Wilson James, while technology will fall under the remit of James Bauer Mind, the company's new head of technology. Speaking about the deal, Gemma Quirk, newly appointed as Chief Operating Officer at Wilson James, has noted, The acquisition of TSG will allow Wilson James to provide greater value to its clients through a combination of consultancy, technology and skilled people. We very much look forward to welcoming TSG's clients and employees to the business. In the wake of the deal, Wilson James and TSG customers will see no interruption to the high levels of service they currently experience. Longer term, both sets of customers stand to gain as TSG is integrated into the Wilson James organisation, synergies are duly identified and sources of greater customer value are then created. Previously the company's Managing Director for Security and Aviation, Gemma Quirk is now responsible for overseeing the company's growth strategy, implementing new corporate initiatives, strengthening strategic partnerships and also ensuring that Wilson James remains resilient and agile as the company expands. In her two decades of working for the business, Quirk has gained considerable insight into the needs of customers in a diverse array of vertical sectors and environments. She will use this experience to full effect as she oversees operational functions and the integration of all service lines for the organisation. There's going to be a distinct emphasis on technology innovation and a partnership approach when it comes to service provision. Reporting to and working closely with CEO Mark Dobson, Quirk will promote the advantages of Wilson James' offer. This includes the company's risk advisory service, which itself is designed to facilitate transformational change through a solutions that are approach that integrates human skills and expertise with technology, thereby allowing the company to deliver the most appropriate combination of services. There is no doubt that Gemma Quirk boasts an enviable track record within Wilson James and arguably understands the values of the company better than anyone. This dedicated security professional has been instrumental in creating a business strategy that engenders positive change through nurturing skills and talent from a wide variety of sources. Our first guest on this episode of the Security Matters podcast is Ian Wright, Chief Risk Officer for Europe at Canada Life and also Chair of the Institute of Risk Management. Canada Life provides retirement, investment and protection solutions to individuals, families and companies alike and boasts 3.4 million customers. It's the UK-based subsidiary of the Great West Life Co group of companies which itself has operations in Canada, the United States, Ireland and Germany. Ian graduated from the University of Sheffield in 1986 with a BA Honours degree in Economics and Financial Management. He then worked across various audit and corporate finance roles at Deloitte for a decade before working at the Financial Services Authority as Head of Insurance for major retail groups. Chief Risk Officer roles at the Prudential and also Sun Life Canada followed before Ian made the move to Quilter PLC in 2016 to become Group Chief Risk Officer. A chartered accountant, Ian was appointed Chair of the Institute of Risk Management at the end of last year. He served as Deputy Chair from May 2018 and was also appointed Chair of the Audit and Risk Committee in December 2016. During the podcast interview, Ian focuses his attentions on the resilience of today's organisations and what good risk management practice looks like. He also outlines the details behind the Institute of Risk Management's modern apprenticeship for risk and compliance. First, we talked about the ongoing response to COVID-19. When it comes to business preparedness and the ongoing response to COVID-19, Ian, what could and should be the role of risk management, do you feel? Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's an interesting one. Um, And one of the roles, I think, of risk management uh, is to look back at what has happened and see what you can learn. So maybe I can answer that by thinking through what I saw sort of unfold through the COVID um, instance and even before COVID became an issue. We carried out, as the Institute of Risk Management, we carried out a survey of uh, about a thousand risk managers in the early days of COVID and that showed that many firms had pandemic on their risk register, but about a third didn't. Um, And even those that had pandemic on their risk register that didn't mean they were prepared. So about a fifth of the companies and the organisations that had identified pandemic as a potential risk hadn't actually done anything to prepare about it. So I think the first thing that risk managers 
are responsible for is to make sure that an organisation is looking at the potential risks that it faces. And secondly, that it does something about those. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to spend a huge fortune putting absolute mitigations in place, but you're ready to react should those um, incidents occur. The second learning that I would see is by and large, uh, organisations leverage their business continuity management practices in the early days. Um, and those kicked in with some refinement for COVID because clearly COVID was an unusual business continuity incidents, not not least in, in the extent of it and also the time uh, elapsed for, for as COVID unfolded. So I think the second role of, of um, risk managers is to challenge the existing processes that organisations have in place, for example, business continuity, and think a bit widely and say, you know, if, if something really bad happens, do we have the right processes to actually manage those? And then I think as COVID unfurled, and we moved out of business continuity management early stages. You know, we got people working from home with appropriate equipment. Companies were looking at furlough schemes. We were looking at whether staff well-being was being considered. And then as, as we started to move to longer term implications, you know, were we maintaining product productivity, um, a shift from well-being, although that was still important, to actually making sure that we had right standards at home working, starting to plan for return to office. Risk management has a real role to play in all of that, you know, standing alongside and, and embedded in the business, being part of those conversations, pointing out, you know, for example, on on the, the, the home working arrangements, um, there's certain regulations. Do we have experts in those? Are we are we looking to consultants if we don't have in-house expertise to support us in that? And, and challenging management to say, are we looking at the right things and are we looking at the right things now? And a, a large part of my role as a chief risk officer, as certainly in the first few weeks of COVID, was trying to be the one that sort of looked ahead and saying to management, this, this phase is not going to last forever. Are we thinking about what we would do when we get to the next phase? Now, that's not predicting what it's going to be, but saying, OK, we've got everybody working from home or we're working on getting everybody working from home. What's the next phase? So are we ready to actually bring them back if we need to? Are we looking after them? And I think, as I say, risk managers need to be involved in all stages of the response to, to an issue such as COVID. Um, and those that were embedded already in the business, I think, found it easiest. And that came through in our survey where, where we looked at the importance of risk managers, that those that were already embedded in the business actually found it easier to make an impact on, on the businesses. So, so the final learning, I think, is make sure that you are close to the business. You're not seen as somebody that's sort of on the side doing maybe a reporting role, but you're embedded in the business. You understand the business activities. You understand the business operations. You understand the strategy of the business. And that will put you in the best place to then react when something like COVID happens. How might today's organisations look to build resilience into their own operations? Yeah, re resilience is a really... Uh, it's a popular word at the moment. Um, in financial services where I work, operational resilience has been something that, that regulators and the Bank of England have been talking about for a while and are, are imminently going to be bringing in some requirements around that. But I think, and I think COVID has given a real focus to organisations on, on resilience. But I think resilience for me is bigger than operational resilience. It starts with strategic resilience. And I think we've seen through COVID there's been real disruptive influence. And it's a really good discipline for organisations to look at what, what might disrupt their business. And typically that's been recently looking at, you know, online technology firms that might come in and disrupt the market. 
but that being over a relatively longish period of time, not a long period of time, but a longish period of time. And what we found with COVID is there's some huge disruptions to supply chains from an operational perspective, but also to business models. So if, if you're working in the hospitality or the travel or the provider of office space um, industries, there's some real questions to be asked there about is our business model appropriate? And then on the other hand, you know, the winners out of this, people like on, online retailers, warehouses, you know, the disruptive influence has been really positive. And are they ready to react and grow their businesses uh, in, in, in the way they need to? So I think in terms of organisations looking to build resilience, start with the strategy and look more widely at potential disruptive influences, things that might happen, whether it's competitors, whether it's regulators, whether it's you know, fiscal response to the COVID crisis, some big, big, big issues that could impact on our business and, and then look at what we need to do to build resilience. And then when you move to operational resilience, what could look to disrupt the operations of the business? So looking at your end-to-end -end processes, and that includes supply chains. And one of the big learnings out of COVID is, is huge early disruption to supply chains as, as companies retrench, people couldn't move around. You know, there were disruption to, to the movement of people and, and uh, trade generally. But looking at the end-to-end -end processes and saying, if something happened to disrupt this, how can I carry on operating and providing a service to my customers? And can you tell us some of the detail around the Institute's recent announcement about modern apprenticeships for risk and compliance, Ian? Yeah, it's, it's, maybe I can put a bit of perspective because it's not just a one-off uh, thing that we've done. Um, when you get to sort of my, my age, unfortunately, a lot, a lot of people of my generation who are senior risk professionals have sort of landed in risk. We haven't we haven't gone through a professional risk education. Um, we've sort of landed in it. In my case, I was an accountant, corporate financier and a regulator. And I ended up in, in businesses managing, uh, you know, managing risk functions. Um, and what the Institute is is really passionate about, and to be honest, the, the reason I joined the board of the Institute is about how can we professionalise risk managers? How can we train people? How can we educate them? And how can we give them uh, professions? And the apprentice scheme is part of that. So we, we have um, training courses we provide. We, we provide short certificates, uh, relatively short certificates in particular around digital risk, supply chain risk. Chain risk. And then we provide qualifications. Or, um, we have an ERM certificate, a financial services certificate, an operational risk certificate, and we have a diploma. <clears throat> and what we wanted to do, what we're always trying to do is make those accessible and so we, it was really good that we were able to join the Modern Apprenticeship Scheme. And Modern Apprenticeships give anybody over the age of 16 the opportunity to work in a paid job uh, while undertaking workplace training to gain new and enhanced skills, and in our case, recognise professional qualifications. And so all, all apprenticeships include elements of on-the-job and off-the-job training and, and the receipt of a recognised standard. So employers can access funding, um, including incentives uh, payments of up to £2,000 for any apprentices hired before uh, January 2021. And just to put that in context, the, the ERM certificate costs 2095 So an employer is pretty much getting that paid for. Um, the, the qualifications that meet the standards are the certificate, which is a level three qualification, and the diploma in risk management, which is a level six qualification. Uh, 
qualification. And so they're a great way for people to learn. They're a great way to get some funding from your employer to enable you to learn. And it's a great way to get a relevant qualification while working in a, in a, in a related field. So, so as I said before, you've got on, on the job training and off the job training and they should be, you know, they should be absolutely complementary. Um, and I think just thinking back to, to COVID, the pandemic has and is going to continue to unfortunately hugely impact the unemployment rate of 16 to 24 year olds. And so the target market for, for apprenticeships is really that, that age group. I mean, you can do apprenticeships as older as anybody over 16, but this should helpfully help, hopefully help that age group really get a qualification that can then kickstart their career. And one of the other um, things that we're really pleased about at the Institute of Risk Management is that we've got some funding from the Enhanced Learning Credits Administration Service, LCAS, um, for our operational risk certificate um, in, in operational risk management. And that's available for ex-service personnel. I know, I know a number of people listening to the podcast are ex-services. Um, so the MOD's Enhanced Learning Credit Scheme promotes uh, lifelong learning amongst members of the, the armed forces. And it provides financial support for people carrying out learning in, in each of a maximum of, of three separate financial years um, for higher level learning, which is where our, our operational risk certificate is. Um, the certificate is an externally accredited, accredited uh, level four and level five course. It's a self-study workbook supplemented with workplace reflection and learning activities. And we're really pleased that we've um, we've been able to, to link up with LCAS in delivering this. Uh, and the exciting development, it builds on our um, signing of the Armed Forces Covenant, which we did uh, last year, which pledges our support for the military community. Um, you can, If you're interested in it, you can visit the LCAS website, search for the Institute of Operational Risk, which is, is part of the Institute of Risk Management. So it's the Institute of Operational Risk as a training provider to get more information. Focusing on your own sector, Ian, in what ways has the pandemic impacted the financial services world? We were sort of initially impacted in exactly the same way as everybody else. So, so we had to go through the initial setup. We had to move people to work from home. Um, we, we had to find laptops, frankly, for a number of people. Um, one of the interesting things about financial services is you have a lot of um, a lot of technical people. So I work in life insurance. We have a lot of actuaries and they, they have a lot of processing power. Um, and so they didn't have laptops. They tended to operate in the office of, you know, big um, personal computers or in, at their workstation. And so we had to find a way of getting them to work uh, out of the office. We, we obviously have a number of people, again, like other industries, but in financial services, a lot of people working in call centres. And that's not easy to move people out of an office setup because you need a phone, you need a recording equipment, and then you need the, the technology which looks at... Um, the technology which which supports the, the screening so, so you've got somebody's details there in front of you and there's obviously a load of privacy issues around that you know if you're setting somebody to, to work as a call center handler at home and you're giving them access to that we need to make sure that there's absolute privacy uh, arrangements around the financial details of, of that customer um, so, so I think largely the same sort of issues that a number of industries were happening ha that were having um, I think you've seen quite a lot of retrenchment by some of, of financial services industries, particularly banks. I think banks typically um, do increase and decrease workforces pretty flexibly and, and do move probably quicker than a lot of organisations. And so, you know, as, as business has fallen off in certain sectors, uh, then you've seen that unfortunately um, going to, to moving to people either going on furlough or, or being made redundant. Um, I think we've got 
um, to look longer term at our products as well as our ways of working and our premises. Um, a lot of financial services firms, particularly insurance companies, are big investors uh, in a range of products. So life insurers, for example, will invest in very large property portfolios. And so we need to understand you know, how those are going to be impacted. Are we going to get the same rental income that, that we had? How are property values affected? Um, and I think the economic recession is going to have significant impacts on financial services as well as clearly the rest of the of the industry. But some products have been resilient. So my sector, health and life insurance, have been fairly resilient. You know, pe- pe- and actually people may may put more value on those products than they have in the past. Um, but other products uh, have been hit. So anything linked to stock markets. So for example, a wealth management business um, products uh, that, that are linked to investment in the stock market have clearly been hit very hard. And so it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I think financial services generally um, have a lot of capital in them and the regulators have made sure of that, particularly post the the financial crisis in sort of mid to late 2000s. Um, So I think financial services are well catered for, um, understand, sort of well well understand their risks uh, and are able to be well capitalised. But that doesn't mean that we're we're not going to take some fairly significant actions uh, going forward. Lastly, Ian, what do you believe good risk management looks like? And following on from that, what should companies be thinking about in their bid to assist with the economic recovery? I think at the heart of what good risk management looks like is is a proper risk framework. And and what I don't mean is go to a consultant and buy a, a picture that looks like a house or four pillars or a circle and try and put that in place. What a proper risk framework is is something that assists the management of the business in making the right business decisions. And so if I think about what what I think is important and what I tend to talk to my senior management colleagues about in, in my business is do businesses and do managers understand the risks in their business? Are they able to measure and monitor those risks against a clearly defined risk appetite that says how much of any particular type of risk are we willing to take on? And do they take action to mitigate those risks where that is appropriate? And I think the the linking of risk professionals into the business and embedding in the business and understanding of the business is a critical part of that because I couldn't do my job if I didn't understand the business because I wouldn't be able to understand whether the managers understand the business and are assessing the right risks. It's not my job to identify risks, it's the business's job to identify risks. And I think that is at the heart of what good risk management uh, looks like. Um, I think part of what the Institute of Risk Management stands for is providing risk professionals with the ability to do that. And so the theoretical part is a lot of actually what is a risk management framework, but but also of equal weight is how do you actually use that to, to give benefits uh, to, to an organisation. And so I think what companies should be thinking about uh, to the second part of your question is firstly, do we have risk managers with the appropriate skill sets and that's partly the way of thinking and and are they able to embed themselves in the business but partly are these people keeping up with the latest developments in risk management have they got the right qualifications for example an institute of risk management certificate or diploma to enable them to understand the theory and put that into practice and I think in terms of what companies should be thinking about in their bid to assist with, with the economic recovery, it's really thinking ahead. And, and I don't think, and, and we teach this as part of our um, part of our courses and qualifications, it's not just it's not just thinking about what might cause us a problem. So it's not the it's not the cause of the event 
that is necessarily the most important is actually what is the impact of that. So both are important, both parts of it. But to some extent, it's it's less important what the particular cause of, of a risk event is. It's what is the impact. So if you think about COVID, we are in a, in a unique situation uh, where businesses have effectively had to move people wholesale um, out of out of offices, make them work remotely, set them up to do that. There's longer term implications. But but it, in this case, it was a pandemic. It could have been something else that has caused that. that. And so thinking as the pandemic as an example of something that might have the impact that it has had is the way of thinking about it. And so I think companies should be thinking generally what might impact us. And I talked earlier about disruptive influences. I think that's a critical thing. But I think in in the context of COVID, we are we are going to be in a, a fairly prolonged uh, recession. None of us know how long that's going to last or how deep it is. It's likely to be pretty much most of the world in that recession all at the same time. I think the critical thing I would say to, if, if there was one thing I said to, com- I would say to companies and organisations is, do some stress testing, do some scenario testing, understand what the potential glide paths from here are, and and don't just look at one central scenario. Look at a best case, a central, and a, and a really bad scenario, and say, are we prepared for what those bad scenarios might show us? And and are we financially prepared? Are we operationally prepared? Are we organisationally prepared? Have we got the right products? Are we talking to our people? Are we talking to our customers to allow us to get through what the next, and I'm afraid it is going to be years, uh, have to have, have in store for us? Back to the latest news now, and the Defence Committee in Parliament has published a report entitled The Security of 5G that strongly suggests the development of 5G will increase the nation's dependency on mobile connectivity, in turn potentially opening up the UK to security risks such as espionage, sabotage or systems failure. The Defence Committee finds that there's currently a lack of global rules regulating international cyber attacks and puts forward the notion that the government should be working with allies to formulate a system purpose-designed to provide accountability for perpetrators. The UK's closest allies within the Five Eyes initiative originally embarked on a policy at odds with that of the UK, states the Defence Committee, the members of which also outlined that the government should have considered the potential damage to key alliances, ultimately concluding that this alone is enough of a concern to begin removing Huawei from the UK's 5G network. The Defence Committee supports a proposal to form a D10 alliance consisting of 10 of the world's largest democracies in order to provide alternatives to Chinese technology and also actively combat the technology dominance of authoritarian states. According to the committee, the government must act swiftly and outline a joint 5G policy as soon as possible. Further, the Defence Committee states, the government must continue to denounce and deter threats from adversarial states such as Russia and China. We are calling on the government to clarify why it's not deploying a cyber attack capability to deter aggressors. Worryingly, the Defence Committee also finds that the current regulatory situation for network security is, and I quote, outdated and unsatisfactory. The planned telecom security bill is required to bring regulations up to date and allow the government to compel operators to act in the interest of security. The Defence Committee supports the UK government goal of removing Huawei from the UK's 5G networks by 2027. However, the committee's members also note that developments could necessitate this date being moved forward, potentially to 2025, which could be considered economically feasible. The government should take necessary steps, states the committee, to minimise the delay and economic damage and consider providing compensation to operators if the 2027 deadline is moved forward. A clear conclusion from the Defence Committee's report is the fact that the UK vendor market for 5G kit isn't diverse enough. On that basis, the committee strongly urges that the government should work with 
mobile network operators to bring in new vendors to the UK, for example Samsung and NEC. The Defence Committee's inquiry found clear evidence of collusion between Huawei and the Chinese state, which would appear to support the decision to remove them from the UK's networks. According to the committee, the designation of Huawei as a high-risk vendor by the UK government is appropriate and completely justified, with the correct steps being taken to remove them from the UK's 5G provision. In the meantime, however, the committee is content that Huawei has been and continues to be sufficiently distanced from sensitive defence and national security sites. Tobias Elwood MP, chair of the Defence Committee in Parliament, has said, We must not surrender our national security for the sake of short-term developments in technology. This is a false and wholly unnecessary trade-off. A new D10 alliance that unites the world's 10 strongest democracies would provide a viable alternative foundation to the technological might of authoritarian states, whose true motives are at times quite murky. Democracies the world over are waking up to the dangers of new technology from overseas that could inadvertently provide hostile states with access to sensitive information through the back door. The government's decision earlier this year was a step in the right direction for many. However, current regulations are deemed to be porous and the legislation lacks teeth, continuing to allow telecoms companies to prioritise profits over the public's and the nation's security. Going forward, the government must ensure that legislation is airtight, leaving no room at all for companies to slip through the cracks. Enacting the Telecom Security Bill by the end of this year is going to be absolutely imperative, as this will bring the regulations right up to date. UK Surveillance Camera Commissioner Tony Porter has awarded Crowded Space Drones, the first ever private sector certificate of compliance in relation to surveillance camera systems and the Protection of Freedoms Act 2012 for the use of unmanned aircraft systems, i.e. drones, in surveillance-related applications. This certification has been granted following a comprehensive independent audit conducted by IQ Verify on behalf of the Surveillance Camera Commissioner. Historically, this certification has only ever been granted to public sector organisations such as the Police Service and the National Health Service. That being so, this move represents a huge step forward when it comes to recognised drone-centric standards for the private sector. Crowded Space Drones is the leading provider of public safety and surveillance-focused drone solutions here in the UK, working for organisations ranging from the police service right through to local authorities and several enforcement agencies. Speaking about the compliance process, Andrew McQuillan, Director of Crowded Space Drones, told Security Matters, when conducting any form of surveillance for public authorities, transparency of compliance is crucial to both the authority and the public. We're exceptionally proud to be the only private sector organisation to have obtained this certification as it not only affords our clients confidence that we comply with all of the relevant legislation in this area, but also enables public trust in our work. Crowded Space Drones was audited by IQ Verify earlier this month. The audit process itself was monitored by the Surveillance Camera Commissioner and encompassed all policies and procedures in relation to data protection, privacy, subject access and also cyber security. Previous surveillance deployments by the company were also audited to ensure that all historic work has complied with the law and recognised best practice procedures. Lawrence Clark, Director of IQ Verify, explained the Surveillance Camera Code of Practice was issued by the Secretary of State under Section 30 of the Protection of Freedoms Act 2012 to ensure that the use of cameras in public places is regulated and that such cameras are only deployed in pursuit of a specified purpose. The Act sets out 12 guiding principles which strike a balance between protecting the public and upholding civil liberties. Clark continued, It's a little-known fact that the remit of the Code of Practice specifically includes surveillance camera systems used in drone applications, whether this use is within the private sector or linked to a relevant authority. He concluded, Of the great many private sector drone organisations here in the UK, it's exciting to see crowded space drones set the quality benchmark for the industry, having now achieved the very first surveillance camera code of practice certification. We sincerely hope this marks the beginning of a positive change towards better standards throughout the industry. Crowded Space Drones was established back in 2015 and is based in Belfast with an operational office in London. Andrew Hamilton, previously the lead on drones for the Civil Aviation Authority, holds the role of Director of Operations with the business. Look out for an exclusive feature provided by Crowded Space Drones and IQ Verify in the November print edition of Security Matters. 
Our second guest on episode 14 is Jamie Allen, the CEO at St Albans-based Amphal Fire and Security. The company is a recognised specialist when it comes to the design, installation, commissioning and maintenance of integrated electronic fire and security solutions within the retail, commercial and public sector markets, as well as operating in the residential space. Graduating from the University of Hertfordshire in 2001 with an honours degree in Manufacturing Systems Engineering, Jamie joined Amphal Fire and Security in 2008 and spent 11 years as Commercial Director before becoming CEO in February of this year. Earlier this week, Jamie told me about the ways in which the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has affected the security sector and what lessons are being learned. First though, Jamie looks back on what's happened to date in Amphal Fire and Security's 20th anniversary year. Twenty twenty is in fact Amphal Foreign Security's twentieth anniversary of being in business, Jamie. I suspect you had a different plan in place for this year before COVID nineteen emerged though. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. We certainly did. We um, we started the year with uh, with a plan of events um, celebrating our twentieth anniversary. Uh, we've had a big party planned for November to thank our our staff, our customers, our partners, um, media, and and all stakeholders really. Many of whom have been with us for for many years. Um, a few for. Uh, over a decade and some since we started. So uh, obviously all this had to change. Um, I wouldn't say it's been, I wouldn't say it's been detrimental at all. Um, we've we've really had to to pull together, and if anything, it's it's kind of tightened our our bond. I I, I look back over this twentieth year, or I certainly will do in in a month or two, and. Um, and I'm, I'm quite proud as to how we have really worked together as a business and, and managed to continue to grow the business despite the pandemic. Pandemic. Um, so, yeah, who knows? Maybe we'll get to celebrate with that party uh, for our 21st birthday next year. Looking further afield, in what ways has the pandemic changed the security industry, do you feel? I think it's really highlighted the the importance of, of relationships and working together. We, we've all been in the, the same boat, but in security specifically, the requires, the requirements haven't changed for for, for our, our businesses and, and for our homeowners. Um, we've got a kind of legal and moral requirement to keep staff and visitors at work safe, um, the same as homeowners do to to look after their families and their homes. So whether it be from sort of building or block management, they also have an obligation to honour their responsibilities to keep residents safe during the uncertain times, obviously, of which we're we're key as an industry. Um, Same within schools and healthcare, they they have obligations to keep their... um, pupils and, and teachers and visitors safe, uh, similar in, in other industries, NHS, etc., so that they can all carry on and, and perform their critical work. So uh, I think it, it's shown the, the industry in a positive light um, across the board. Um, we, uh, we've had to keep on track and keep our businesses functioning so that it allows those key workers to keep um, keep doing their critical jobs as well and, and keep everybody really safe in their, their home and their, their places of work. And what would you say is the biggest trend in the security business sector at the moment that you're seeing? Um, I think the biggest trend uh, probably around connectivity, especially for um, everyone working remotely, the, the sort of impact of 5G and cloud technology um, is driving demand for 
for more powerful integrated devices that can be connected to one one another, maintained and monitored remotely, of course, and and, and efficiently um, across the UK. I think the um, the additional reliance on mobile and tablet technology, which we've seen uh, evolve even before the pandemic, but certainly since the pandemic has, has hit, it means that the security measures for business and homes have been able to operate on smart devices and sort of fit the the more mobile friendly lifestyle that we're all well we were becoming um accustomed to and and certainly have have done um since the beginning of the year even more so now i think um we're on the the cusp of seeing the potential of technological advances and the the ability to create greater intelligence certainly with the ai in our in our sort of systems that we're integrating especially from the cctv point of view faster responses um visual insights and and sort of dedicated data it's exciting times and i think it's hard to imagine what the industry will be like over the coming um five or ten years on that note, Jamie, how do you see the future panning out for the security industry? Well, as, as I said there, I think the, the dynamics of the security industry are changing and not only in the evolving technology that I just mentioned and the integration and connectivity, but also in the next generation of, of sort of engineers and, and product designers come through as technology continues to, to change. Um, our, our younger team... Uh, have grown up with smart technology and it's their own sort of preference and they're able to adapt to to new innovations quickly. I think they carry a different skill set and arguably mindset to to us more uh, mature generations in the industry. Um, We're seeing this in the new apprentices and uh, especially as we sort of hire across our teams, both in the engineering side and in fact in the sales side. Um, they they all bring their their unique new dimension to Anthel, their their ambition to learn a trade. They're embracing the the sort of changing nature and, and opportunities that that we're seeing in our um, rapidly changing industry. Uh, I think for the future of the industry, we need to embrace these new ideas and uh, the the new ideas that the the younger generations are. Are bringing um, along with integrating and still calling on the um, more traditional core skills. Um, I think that both parties, the, the old and the new, have both got a lot to bring to the table still and it's how we integrate and learn from each other which is key. I think this is um, this is the only way that we're going to be able to meet the demands of the sort of discerning customer quickly and efficiently while embracing the latest technology that that our younger um, our younger clients are, are demanding. And lastly, Jamie, what do you believe is the biggest lesson to be learned from this past year, both from your own point of view and from a general industry perspective? Well, I think that from a personal point of view, I think that, that really what I take from it uh, embraces Anfield's culture and our and our mission and vision and, and values as a family business and it's and it's that belief in teamwork. I think with without us all working together and and going in the same direction at the same speed, we we wouldn't have come through the other side of this um, of this year as strongly as we have. Um, we've had to introduce new ways of working, policies, diversified our product portfolios. 
um, introduced new risk assessments for, for fever screening and new ways to communicate um, within our business and with our clients while sort of working at home and, and keeping our families safe. Um, I'm really proud how the team's responded and it's, um, it's shown in our continued growth. Um, people invest in security solutions from peoples and from people and um, companies they trust and, and who can deliver and, and show them respect. So um, it's not the strongest to survive. It's the, um, it's the most adaptable to change that survive. Um, and from an industry perspective, I think our lesson came right at the beginning of the pandemic to, um, to fight for what we believe in. We pulled together as a team with, um, with leading industry bodies. Um, we were quickly identified as, as key workers and we, and we soon took up our role um, as vital uh, contributors to get us through this pandemic by delivering the, the services that were required to keep people and property safe. So I think there's been some, some big lessons learned this year, certainly. That brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Ian Wright of the Institute of Risk Management and also Jamie Allen from Amphal Fire and Security for their highly valued contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsors, The Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters, where you can view our podcasts and read the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can also access our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our weekly news bulletins. Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag securitypod. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters. As a reminder, the Security Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.